Hello again. Welcome to podcast two of the year, which over the course of this year is going to take a look at a very remarkable year in history that took place exactly 100 years ago, between November 1918 and November 1919. On the 11th of November, I released the first episode, which was about the rage-filled 29-year-old Adolf Hitler's reaction to hearing about Germany's defeat. I hope some of you also had a chance to see our little animation to celebrate 100 years since the rebirth of Poland, which was released on the same day. For while the 11th of November was a day of dismal humiliation in Germany, in Poland it was the day that Pilsudski declared Poland's rebirth, and now is celebrated each year as Polish Independence Day. Podcast 2 is also set on the same day, but takes place in London, in amongst the riotous euphoria of victory. While it is the case that Britain was victorious, it came at a great price. More than a million British and Commonwealth soldiers were dead, millions more injured, and Britain had depleted its considerable financial reserves in the pursuit of victory. The British Empire went into the war as the world's largest economic bloc and came out of it second to the United States and needing to devolve power in the so-called White Dominion territories of the Empire, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and South Africa, which effectively became independent countries. And in India, the substantial contribution of men and resources lent weight to the Indian elite's demand for autonomy. Even as the Empire was on the surface of the world expanding, because it took over certain German and Turkish colonial territories, in reality it was already starting to fracture. The two gnarled British Empire warriors who feature in Podcast 2 were well aware of this and wanted to find a high-profile way to assert Britain's power in the world in the wake of World War I. So here it is. The Year. Podcast 2. 11th of November 1918. Victory, but still a mountain to climb. We have not journeyed all this way across the centuries, across the oceans, across the mountains, across the prairies, because we are made of sugar candy, Winston Churchill. There was a haze of expectation hanging over the morning. The nurses had done their morning rounds as if they'd been drip-fed Italian coffee overnight, and by 9.30am there was barely a sound coming from the corridor outside Captain Charles Bruce's private room. The usual bustle also seemed to have evaporated from the London outside his window as 11 o'clock approached. Bruce laboriously swung his legs out from under covers, tucked so tightly that Bruce mused he'd had more of a struggle to prise himself free of them than he had from many a wrestling opponent. Leaning heavily on his rosewood walking stick, picked up in a Delhi bazaar, Bruce muscled his sizeable bulk over to the window. Outside was a bare scattering of people. Nothing unusual for the small street that King Edward's Hospital for Officers was located on. Yet today, its quietness had the quality of anticipation, the calm before the storm. 
The thing about Storms was that it was best to be dressed appropriately, so Bruce, with great effort, donned his full military uniform for the first time in over two years. Peace, as London's clocks rang out the 11th hour, was heralded by the booming of the maroon guns, scourges of the zeppelins. Spontaneously, as if fires had broken out in every building along the road, men and women started pouring out onto the quiet Marlebone Road below his window. Bruce saw his own nurses and doctors among the human outpouring from the hospital's main doors. Old stokers, and among them a few women, emerged, soot-covered from the basements, their blackened appearances contrasting with the white of the hospital uniforms and the blue of the patient's hospital slacks. As officers, whose injuries were not sufficient to prevent it, hobbled and shuffled out among the throng. A chubby bugle boy, Bruce wondered why they were always chubby, looking like well-fed butcher's boys, came out to echo the tuneless bugling that could be heard on neighbouring streets. These signalmen that the skies were all clear after a raid by Gotha bomber planes were now joining in the chorus for the ultimate signal of the all clear, the end of four years of slaughter. Captain Charles Bruce had never been one to miss a party, and he had no intention of missing this one. His doctors had forbidden him from leaving his bed, but his doctors and his nurses were currently otherwise occupied. They had told him that under absolutely no circumstances was he to attempt walking for another three months. But then again, Bruce reflected, they were also of the opinion that he should be dead. Bruce was the only survivor from his 106th Gurkha Battalion, the general of the Gallipoli campaign, who had ordered them to land on a steep beach surrounded by high cliffs with Turkish machine guns encrusted into them was a damn fool. But while Bruce was a man to speak his mind, he was lifelong military and would never disobey an order from a superior officer. He would just make a point of sleeping with their wives instead. Bruce was quite probably, or at least had been in his youth, the strongest man in the British army, quite possibly in the entire world and women found this irresistible. Back in the Raj, he would run up the peak next to his base every morning at dawn with one of his servants on his back. One of his other favourite pastimes was seeing how many of his men he could wrestle at once. One time he had taken on and defeated six soldiers, and at Gallipoli, it had taken 17 bullets to bring him down. The pain had surprised him. It had also probably saved him. It made him angry, and that made him determined not to give the greasy Turks the satisfaction of killing him. Under the cover of darkness, he had crawled 600 feet back across no man's land from the Turkish trenches that they had stormed. The journey had taken him all night. At one point, he had passed out and awoke to find a rat the size of a small dog chewing on his boot. His faithful Gurkha knife soon put a stop to that. The medical orderly who first treated him took some time to actually start doing anything other than gape at him. The young man had counted and recounted the bullet holes three times. 17. Charles Bruce had been shot 17 times. His war was over. An indeterminate time had intervened, passing out and coming to on a hospital ship. All he had really remembered was that it was hot and that it ended with him being confined to this hospital bed in London for the past year. And now, now the war was over for everyone, and that meant there would be one hell of a party.
The fact that everyone in the hospital was out on the street hugging each other made his getaway easier. He could only walk at about the pace of an Indian python, but he figured if that brute was able to slip around the world unnoticed, then why not him? He hobbled out of the hospital, trying to be inconspicuous, not something that came naturally to Bruce, and made his way to Regent Street. He had the vain hope that maybe he would be able to hail a cab there. On Regent Street, there were indeed cabs, but not ones that could be hailed. Each and every cab was piled high with people, munition girls on the bonnet flirting with strapping Aussies, skinny grinning boys glued onto every available bit of bumper, soldiers, tradesmen and women of every description crammed inside. Everyone was singing, everyone was cheering. The cars and the buses all inched forward in the direction of, and at the pace of, the crowd. A double-decker bus stood above the rest. Two soldiers were hauling women up from the street onto the roof. The bus conductor was leaning out of the window and giving them choice words until they hauled her up too, and she succumbed to the inevitable and started dancing along with the rest of them. Having his uniform on, Bruce found himself to be the target of everyone. Men were slapping him on the back, women were hugging him, and both seemed to have an unfailing accuracy in pinpointing at least one of his wounds as they did so. But then, with 17 to choose from, they were not hard to find. Bruce hobbled through the throng with an expression that was part smile and part grimace. He battled through the river of bodies, the current of which at least was flowing in the direction he needed to go. At the centre of this living river were the vehicles. Each one was so crammed full of people that it would be like cramming a cod into a tin of sardines for him to try and join them. So instead he settled for displacing a brace of scallywags from the footboard of one particular cab. The dusty imp saluted him and smiled brightly, then scrambled onto the bonnet instead. Being the breadth of two men, Bruce could only balance precariously on the footboard by screwing his good arm backwards in through the driver's window and around the driver's seat but it was a darn sight less painful than walking. Where are we off to? He inquired of the driver. Why, sir, we're off to see Lloyd George, of course, the driver replied. There was a cheer from the sardines in the back at the mention of the Prime Minister's name. One of the sardines struck up the Welsh national anthem in a crystal baritone. Bruce joined in in his gruff bass. The singing soldier stopped in surprise and leaned forward. Well, hey, you're Welshman, sir. Born and bred in Aberdare, Bruce replied, and then launched into the chorus. His booming bass was a magnet to the Welsh among the crowd, and they all weaved their way towards the sonorous beacon of Bruce. Bruce had been taught this song as a boy by the landlord at the Kink's Inn. They'd belt it out over a pint after a successful day of hunting. With the Welshman being singled out as the man of the moment, Lloyd George, aka the Welsh goat, as he was no slouch when it came to the ladies, it seemed a fitting song. Soon the Welsh contingent, outnumbered but with muscles for singing, were competing with Cockney tunes and the national anthem coming from elsewhere in the Malay. At Piccadilly Circus, Bruce parted with difficulty from his newfound brethren. Captain, you have to come pay your respects to the Welsh wizard. He's the man what won the war, said one. Who's going to be our base now? Another chipped in. Sorry, lads, I have to go and see a man about a mountain. Send the wizard my best. We'll do that, said the soldier. We'll tell him Captain Bruce sends his best, we will, said another. 
You do that. With that, Bruce managed to gently prise the last set of restraining hands from his arms and dragged himself through the crowd, trying to keep his composure on Piccadilly as he defied the direction of the human river emerging out of the west, which, like the other tributaries, was converging on Downing Street. It was a relief when he could cut down through the passageway of Eagle's Place and walk the remainder of the way to Pall Mall along back streets. Finally, he arrived at his club, reassuringly spacious after the Malay outside, and made his way to the saloon. Everybody would be in the saloon. As he entered, he caught sight of the head waiter. Hopkins, bring up the case of my family's whiskey, he boomed out. Very good, sir. Everyone turned to see Charles Bruce standing tall, smiling roguishly. He's been in one cellar or another for more than 150 years. I think that's bloody long enough, don't you? Most everyone in the room knew Bruce well and there was a queue of people wanting to speak to him. The room was a mixture of military and government, all coming from the right sorts of families. Bruce was the 14th son of the Duke of Aberdare, who had served Israeli as Home Secretary. Coal had been found on their lands, and by the time Charles Bruce was born, their lands were dotted with mines. Bruce found his family pompous in the extreme. His great influence growing up was the local innkeeper, who taught him to hunt, to climb and to drink, which became his lifelong abiding passions. Much as he loved the hills of Glamorgan and Merthyr, the stiff formality of his class was just not for him, which is why he had joined the military and gone off to India. Unlike many of his fellow officers, Bruce learned all the local languages and considered his Gurkha soldiers as family, but he also knew how to blend into the rarefied world of his exclusive club and he skillfully glad-handed his way around the room. So you bloody well finished the bosh off without me. Drink up, Snowden, it's got to be drunk sometime. Where's that brute Churchill? He went to the front after Gallipoli. That was my plan. It's a jolly day, sir. What do you say we have another? Eventually the room was worked, and Bruce could get off his aching legs and sit down next to his old friend, young husband. A waitress brought him his eighth whiskey, Bruce took it from her and then did a double take. He raised his eyebrows at young husband. Yes, they even let them in here. I doubt they will be staying, though, now that the war's over. Shame, Bruce replied, his eyes firmly fixed on the behind of the retreating maid. Same old Brucey, Francis chuckled. Bruce brought his attention back to his friend. Francis' young husband had been a fellow traveller in the Himalayas, a player of the great game, and a man whose mind had been altered beyond recognition by his time in Tibet. After having led an expedition that massacred the Tibetan army, young husband was subject to a spiritual revelation and subsequently started writing books on spiritualism. Bruce, by contrast, stayed well away from religion. You couldn't eat it, drink it or climb on top of it, so he didn't see the damn point. But he was shrewd enough to have it marked down as one of those subjects not to berate people about. And anyway, he and Francis did have one shared spiritual goal. So now we can go back to planning to conquer her, Bruce exclaimed. Young husband gave a meaningful look at Bruce's legs. Bruce took the meaning. Oh, stuff and nonsense, Francis. You think I'm going to let some Turkish steel stop me from taking her? Francis smiled. Well, Bruce, my boy, we need her now more than ever. It is imperative that an Englishman is the first to stand on the top of Everest. An old chap... I can't see how that can be you. Of course it's not going to be me, you fool. Everest is a young man's mountain, but young men supported by pig-headed, experienced old frontier loners. 
and a battalion of coolies. And there is only one man who could head such an outfit, and that's me. Bruce and young husband had first talked about conquering Everest back in 1893. However, leave from their respective spying and military duties had never coincided sufficiently and had prevented them from ever getting close until young husband had been put in charge of the Royal Geographical Society in 1911. Even at that point, Bruce and young husband were of an age where an assault on the most extreme mountain on the planet was probably beyond them. But still, they had begun in earnest to plan an expedition. Kaiser Bill's armies marching into Belgium had shelved their plans for the duration of the war. That's if we have any young man left, Bruce mused, swilling his ninth whiskey. Oh, there is one man, Charles, like no other. I think he would have even left you for dust in your prime. A knife-blade stare edged across Bruce's face. His natural competitiveness made him bristle at any challenge to his supremacy. The young husband met and matched his stare. Yes, Bruce, I think it is undeniably the case. His name is Mallory, George Mallory, and he is a rock god. Mountain goats would fear to follow his lead. And by golly, he's British, a splendid fellow. And the blight has come out the other side of the Somme completely unscathed. I think he is our man. And Bruce, we need this. Young husband rested his hand on Bruce's arm. Bruce knew that the we young husband was referring to was England, Empire and all that. Young husband had spent the war working with John Buchan in orchestrating the nation's propaganda, putting his friend's flair for fiction to good use. However, in spite of their complete control of all newspapers and despite the fact that the English were patriotic to the core, the news seeping from the front, the futility, the massacres, just the sheer horror of it all, had chipped away at British self-belief. It seemed like a bloody twilight was descending over the empire on which the sun never sets. Even on this day of victory, young husband knew that they needed another, and Everest was it. British amateurism had caused the empire to be pipped to both poles, and young husband was going to make damn sure that the same could not be said about the top of the world. The top of the world would belong to Britain. And from this height they could proclaim that Britain still ruled the world. By God, Brucey, we can't fail at this. You saw the war up close, but I saw the whole truth, the whole picture. It may sound dafty on this day, the day that we have finally vanquished the Kaiser, but we need this. We really do. Britain is broken. So heal thyself, Bruce. Heal thyself because your country needs you. Afterward. Brigadier Charles Granville Bruce was passed over for leading the 1921 expedition to Everest because his 17 bullet wounds were not sufficiently healed. However, he led both the 1922 and 1924 expeditions, which both set new height records, and also led to the death of George Mallory and Sandy Irvine on their final attempt to reach the peak of Everest. No one surpassed the record set on these two expeditions until 1952, when Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tensing conquered Everest. So, it was a Nepalese and a New Zealander who finally managed to stand on top of the world. Bruce, who spoke fluent Nepalese and was very close to his men in a patrician, aristocratic sort of way, probably would have been both happy and unsurprised to know that a Sherpa, his favourite tribe on the Indian subcontinent, was the second man to stand on the summit. 
about the New Zealander a few paces ahead of Sherpa Tensing, he would have been less thrilled about. If any of you would like to find out more about the Everest expeditions, I highly recommend Into the Silence by Wade Davis. It is a pretty hefty tome, but utterly fascinating. The book is as much about World War I as it is about the first attempted conquests of Everest, as all of the people on the expeditions were survivors of the Great War, and it cast a deep, dark shadow into their psyches. The expeditions were in one way the last of their kind, Charles Bruce insisted on a retinue of hundreds of porters and hauled lavish food and lavish drink, including the finest champagnes and vintage brandies all the way up the mountain with them. And most of the climbers were still dressed in tweed suits. In another way, the expeditions were also the first of their kind, with oxygen being used and with a film crew in tow. Actually, a remarkable one-man film crew, Captain John Knoll, who not only shot the film, he actually invented the equipment for mountain filming and additionally raised the money for both the film and for a large part of the expedition costs. His gamble paid off as his film, The Epic of Everest, was one of the first ever blockbuster hits. We will come across more colourful characters who were on the Everest expedition later in the series with a story about the Third Anglo-Afghanistan War. When it comes to Afghanistan and Western superpowers, History has repeated itself many, many times. It seems that after each war, Western superpowers suffer amnesia, and so after a couple of decades, repeat the same mistake all over again. However, that story is a few months away. The next podcast will be published on the 1st of December. It will delve into a conspiracy theory around the biggest killer in the history of the world, and I'm really looking forward to presenting it as it is both a fascinating and a frightening story. Also, I hope that I will be recording it on a new, more professional microphone. Michael Yankowski from Noise Room, who is doing the sound for the year, wanted me to mention the fact that I've been recording the first two podcasts onto my computer in a variety of hotel rooms as I've been travelling about, just in case anyone may be doubting his prowess as a sound designer. Michael did the sound design for my film Loving Vincent and did an absolutely fabulous job. So if you need any sound work, please do check out his studio, www.noiseroom.pl. It is my intention that alongside the podcast, I will be publishing tweets on Twitter and photos on Instagram that relate to the stories in the year. I will be using my company Breakthrough Films social media platforms for this. So if you're interested, please follow Breakthrough Films on Twitter, spelt B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-U-F-I-L-M-S. And the Instagram account is Breakthrough Films PL. If you have any comments, messages or queries about the podcasts, I believe you can send messages through either of those platforms. 
That's it for this episode, so thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me again on the 1st of December to delve into the conspiracy around the biggest killer in the history of the world.